Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best lean not on our own understanding in all our ways acknowledge him and expect that he will direct our paths so grab your bible prepare your hearts and minds hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the holy spirit and then join me as we open up the treasures of god's word In this episode, we will be celebrating the communion, otherwise known as the table of the Lord, or even sometimes the Eucharist. But before we get started, let me say a few things. In this ministry, we do things a bit differently than you may be used to. In most Christian churches around the world, there's a lot of tradition that goes along with this celebration. And let me say, by the way, that includes those independent evangelical churches who like to proudly claim to be tradition-free. We, in this ministry, like to keep it simple. We follow our Lord's instructions, and we handle ourselves in a scriptural manner while we celebrate. Now, let me explain, and this is all you'll need to know to celebrate with us. Let me begin with some scripture, always my favorite place to start. Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, here in Matthew 26, we find the authorization, if you will, for the bread and the cup, collectively known as the elements. So when you celebrate the communion, you are to have a set of the elements for everyone participating with you. That is, you'll have some bread, and a cup with something to drink. Those are the elements. Now, although we are not going to get too hung up on the details of the elements, here are some guidelines. First, the bread. Now, forget tradition. I know some of you are used to the little round wafers that are given out in some churches. Now, I'm not a big fan of that, but I don't want to get into why I'm not a big fan of that, into what I'm calling this mini lesson. Plain old bread is fine. That's what scriptures say Jesus used, so there's no reason to be too elaborate. However, having said that, let me say that when we in this ministry partake, we use unleavened bread. You maybe know unleavened bread as matzah or matzo or matzo crackers. The reason why we use matzo crackers or unleavened bread is because we can be certain that's what Jesus ate that night. The story of what we today call the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper 
took place during the celebration of Passover and all devout Jews, and trust me, there was no Jew more devout than Jesus. All devout Jews ate only unleavened bread during the celebration of Passover. Jesus and his disciples, you can be sure, only had unleavened bread on their table that night. So we use unleavened bread when we partake in the communion. Now you may ask, is it a sin to eat leavened bread during the communion? Bread that has yeast in it. Is that a sin while celebrating the communion? Well, in my opinion, no. And the, the, the devil and the church, they want us to worry about that. They want us to overly worry about that, but let's not. Remember, the whole point of the communion is to remember him, not just some silly list of ingredients. Let's just make a decision on the type of bread and then go with it because it's just bread. Again, tradition may want to tell you something different, but it is just bread. The important part in all of this is what the bread represents. And Jesus told us what that is. Quote, I'm reading from scripture again. Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So that's the bread. It's a symbol of his body, the body he gave up for us. So what's next? Matthew 26, 27, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, here is where there's been a sustained battle for centuries. Again, our aim in this lesson is not to argue, fuss, and fight. So, let's just keep this simple by again telling you what we believe and the manner in which we partake. First of all, at our communion celebrations, there are two elements. Now, some church tradition doesn't stress the two-element thing. Some church tradition says that all you need is the bread, but that's not what Jesus said. And so, we have both elements, the bread, which we've already discussed, and the cup. Now, what about the cup? What should be in it? Well, as we just said, Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his friends when all of this took place. So we can be relatively certain that the cup he chose to share was one of the ritual cups of the Seder, which is the traditional, highly ritualized Passover meal. We've covered the Seder in previous lessons. And if you remember that lesson, you'll know that there are ceremonial cups of wine. So most likely there was a cup of wine, and I use that term loosely, there was a cup of wine at the table, and that was the cup that Jesus used. That's why most of the time when you do receive the cup at communion, there's wine in it. However, it's 
not unusual to be in a church that simply uses grape juice and even sometimes water. Now, let me state my position on this. It's exactly how I feel about the bread. I don't believe it matters what's in the cup, so don't let the contents of the cup distract you. You are celebrating a memorial with symbols. That's what the elements are. They're symbols. Now, down through the centuries, again, I will say this has been hotly debated, and we're not going to reopen that debate here. In this ministry, we use, listen to me, plain old fruit juice, either grape or cherry. Now, don't let that fact cause you to judge my stance on the use of alcohol. My feelings about alcohol have nothing to do with our choice of this communion element. This is why we use non-alcoholic fruit juice. This is listen to this. In order to produce alcohol, some of you know you will most likely use a type of yeast. Now, this is, of course, an oversimplification. Please don't email me and write me letters trying to straighten me out about the fermenting process. Most commonly, fermentation of alcoholic beverages involves the introduction of yeast. Now, yeast is leaven, and since there is to be no leaven whatsoever in the homes of devout Jews during the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, by the way, which follows the Feast of Passover, because there was no leaven in the homes at that time, during that celebration, we believe that Jesus probably didn't hand out alcoholic wine. Alcoholic wine is technically leavened grape juice. Now, can I state that categorically? Can I categorically say that Jesus did not hand out wine? No, it doesn't say. And what do I say every time the Bible doesn't say something about something? It's not important. But I will say, as I did before, I don't think you're sinning if you do things differently or think things differently than we do when it comes to the contents of the elements. Once again, I say you decide what you use and then put, listen to me, put the whole matter out of your mind. Which leads us to the last very important issue we'll discuss with regard to the communion. This time, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, ye proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself. The King James says, let a man examine himself. This is the revised version. Let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he that eateth and drinketh, eateth and drinketh judgment unto himself, if he discern not the body. Now for many centuries, there has been fear 
around this table, and that eventually fear gave way to apathy. First, we feared the table of the Lord. Then we didn't care. That's where we are now, where people don't care. And neither of those two states is acceptable. Let's cover the fear. Now, to be honest, I get it. I understand the element of fear. The above passage that I just read is rather ominous. It speaks of being guilty of something. It speaks of judgment. There are, these are things that you and I and every clear-thinking Christian shrinks from. We don't want to be guilty. We don't want judgment. We want to do things right. And then throw in the very next verse, For this cause many among you are weak and sickly, and not a few sleep, meaning die. Throw that verse in, and then you have a full-scale panic every time the pastor says, Time for communion. No! Do we really think that's what Jesus intended when he left this for us, for us to be fearful when we come to the table? Now, we can, and we have spent entire lessons on this, but let me set your mind somewhat at ease. Paul is saying that if we drink, eat and drink unworthily, now that word is an adverb, unworthily, that's why I keep saying it like that, unworthily is an adverb. Adverbs describe actions, not actors. This is not unworthy, this is unworthily. Adverbs describe an action. Paul says, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, then you're risking those things that he mentioned. The judgment. Being guilty. If you partake in an unworthy manner. Now, I don't want to go into too much depth here about what those things are that he says you're risking, because the point of this lesson is to go over how to make Jesus happy when you celebrate the communion. In this lesson, we're not focusing on anything other than what God expects out of us. Because frankly, if we do what he asks, well, then it won't matter what happens to us when we do otherwise, right? God says to eat and drink in a worthy manner, so let's just do that. Well... What does that mean? Fortunately, Paul tells us, and he tells us in plain, easy language. Paul says that the unworthy manner is eating and drinking, not discerning the Lord's body. The unworthy manner is when you don't discern the Lord's body. A worthy manner, therefore, is discerning the Lord's body, right? Does that make sense? Now, you, maybe you're saying, well, what does discern mean? What does that mean? Well, let's look at Webster's. Now, this is important. This is important to get to the basics, not only to avoid those negative ramifications of not eating and drinking worthily, but also because this sweet little celebration was given to us by someone we love, right? He told us to do this, and we love him. If you're 
dear granny asked you to take your shoes off in the house, you'd do it because you're because she's your sweet granny and you love her and you want to please her. You don't ignore granny, at least I hope you don't. You don't sit there and, well, should I take my shoes off or shouldn't I? I mean, how important is this? Is granny going to smack me in the back of the head? Is that really what you think about? Granny asked me. I love her. I'll do what she says. Why would this be any different? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You're going to find out in a moment that remembrance and discerning are the same thing. Now, according to Webster, to discern means to come to know or recognize mentally. It's that simple. That's the definition of the English word discern. It also sounds, well, pretty close to the word remembrance, don't you think? Real quick, Webster says, remembrance means the state of bearing in mind. Same thing as recognizing something mentally. They mean the same thing. Jesus wants you to remember him, to discern him, discern what he did for you when you go to the table. Now, one more time, forget for a moment what happens to you if you don't and just concentrate on how this is simply a request from someone we love. Jesus wants you to remember him. Listen, if we concentrated more on this, whatever this is as a relationship, this church thing, this Christianity, if we concentrated more on this being a relationship between two people, a lot of the silliness goes away. We cloud it with tradition. We, we make it foggy with all the silly things that we do and think and say. It's a relationship. You can get to the true meaning and intention of things if you just realize this is a relationship. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, I love you. That's what I'm going to do. Yes, there are things that can happen to me if I don't do that. Forget about that. Jesus said to do it. I'm going to do it that way. I'm going to remember him. He wants us to think about him. Now, whenever I take communion in a church, which is not very often, church is not a good place to concentrate on the things of God. And I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but it's true. Church is not a good place to go if you want to concentrate on the things of God. Now, most churches, there are some churches, sure. Most churches, no. Tell me, honestly, does it look like anyone is concentrating on Jesus at communion in church? Again, maybe some, but not very often, unfortunately. And that's partly why we celebrate communion with you through this ministry, either over the radio or through our web stream or now through these podcasts. We want you to have some control over your discerning environment. So when you partake, and the lesson again, I want to tell you, the lesson that follows this little intro, yeah, some, some little intro, the lesson that follows this intro 
is one in which we go to the table of the Lord. And I'm suggesting to you that if you want to partake, once we get to the communion in this lesson, I'm going to tell you it's not, it doesn't happen right away. It happens sometime during the lesson. This was previously recorded a couple of years ago. Sometime in that lesson, we go to the table of the Lord. And if you want to partake then I suggest that you find somewhere quiet and without distraction so that you can commit your full attention to discerning and remembering. So let's wrap this up. It's already gone far longer than I had intended it to do. The lesson that follows contains a communion celebration, and if you want to join us, and you don't have to. You can just listen to the lesson. You can listen to the communion and how we do things. You do not have to partake if you listen. Just listen. But if you do decide to partake, here are some things to keep in mind. Number one, this is a wrap-up. This is a summary. Number one, have a set of the elements, that's the bread and the wine, for each person who will be participating with you. The bread will symbolize the body, and the cup will symbolize the blood. You, and what's in the cup? It can be wine, it can be juice or water. The one that will be in front of me will have juice. Number two, make sure you are in a place where you do not have any distractions, at least for the few minutes that we will be sharing together at the table of the Lord. Turn off your phone, put the little ones to bed, put the dogs upstairs, draw the curtains if you have to, just find a quiet, peaceful place so you can remember him. You got all that? The table of the Lord is one of the most lovely experiences we can have as members of his church. We will be getting into a communion message in just a few moments. The table of the Lord is a lovely celebration. If we do it right, without fear and without distraction, it can be something you look forward to time and again. Just make sure you show Jesus the respect he deserves and partake of the communion as he commanded, as he said, do this in remembrance of me. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, I know it's considered goofy or amateurish to begin with a dictionary definition, but here we go. According to Merriam-Webster, to discern means to come to know or recognize mentally. Paul's statement declares that in order to partake of the communion worthily, that means in a worthy manner, it's not referring to your personal state of worthiness. It's referring to the manner in which you partake. The manner in which you partake is deemed worthy when you know or recognize mentally the Lord's body. Now, of course, Paul states this negatively by using the un, un prefix unworthily. Paul is describing the unworthy manner. He says, 
your manner of partaking is unworthy when you fail to discern, when you fail to recognize mentally the Lord's body. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, not discerning the Lord's body. Perhaps if we discuss what... Now this, by the way, is very important. Down through the centuries, the Christian church has been trying to teach you and I that this means you and I must be worthy to partake. You and I must be worthy, that you and I must be sin-free, that we must partake in a sin-free manner. That's not at all what it says. The word in 1 Corinthians 11.29 is unworthily, eateth and drinketh unworthily. That's not your worthiness, your state of worthiness. It's the manner in which you partake. And the manner in which you partake is worthy when you discern the Lord's body. And I want to make sure that that's clear. If you are eating and drinking, not discerning the Lord's body, then you are eating and drinking unworthily. Is that clear? Good. So let's continue. And you know what? Maybe it would be helpful if we discussed what prompted Paul to bring this matter up to the Corinthians in the first place. Maybe that will help us to cement in our minds this idea of what is actually worthy and not worthy. Is it, am I worried about me or am I worried about the way I'm partaking? And I will tell you that if, if we discuss relatively briefly why Paul decided to put 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine in that letter, of course the the designation 1 Corinthians 11.29 wasn't there. That's a medieval edition. But what when he put in the letter, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. If we can find out why he said that, what was he trying to point out, that's going to help us. If you study the early church, as I love to do. Some call it the primitive church. If you study that, one thing becomes very, very clear. From the very beginning of the church, the communion, what we will be doing today, that celebration was of utmost importance. It was what was stressed and emphasized because it was the opportunity for Christian converts to become intimately connected to what Christ did on the cross. That's why it's called communion. We are communion, communing with Christ in his suffering. We're not physically doing it, but we are in our minds, in our imaginations, and in our spirits gathering a better understanding. And we're doing that together with each other and with him. That was extremely important in the early church. It gave them an opportunity to have a visceral experience. But it didn't take very long for the simple, beautiful ceremony that Jesus himself prescribed to become corrupted. 
it's clear from the correspondence Paul sent to the church at Corinth that they needed a little re-education as to the importance of the communion. Sound familiar? Well, what we've, from what we can tell from the letter to the Corinthians, the church there had turned the once Solomon Christ-centered celebration into, well, anything but. There is one thing that should distinguish a Christian. There is one thing that should be present in the life of one who's given himself or herself to Christ. There is one thing everyone that is truly born again should hear at least once in their life. Boy, you've really changed. I hardly recognize you. I mean, you look the same, but you're different. You're definitely different. The first thing that Jesus ever said as a preacher was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the, the word repent has been badly interpreted down through the centuries. All Jesus was saying was, change the way you perceive things. Because everything else on earth is about to change. When he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was saying, you must change the way you see things because everything around you is about to change. Now, I'm not going to talk about repentance today, but I do want to touch on it ever so briefly before we move on. Human behavior although sometimes expressed in complex ways, is always traceable to perception. A person will behave based on their perceptions, and that even includes people who are delusional. A, per, a man who believes he's a woman will behave like a woman. A person who perceives himself to be in danger will behave as if he is in danger. A person who perceives himself to be hungry will conduct himself as if he's hungry. You get the point. You know all this already. It's hardly worth the 15 seconds I gave it in elaboration. When Jesus started his ministry with the call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was speaking to people who had already a set of perceptions that resulted in a set of actions and reactions. And Jesus told them that they must change those perceptions and those accompanying actions. Now, just as a side note, be careful. Some people think that Jesus was only speaking to the Jews. 
Some people will tell you that repentance has no place in the Christian life because Jesus was only speaking to the Jews, that Jesus was somehow saying that your old world is about to change, I'm about to bring in a new one, and that repentance doesn't apply to anyone born into the church. Wrong. Luke 2.32, Jesus is described as a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And now from the Bible's perspective, that means the whole world. So when Jesus said, change your mind, he was talking to all of us. Therefore, I go back to what I said at the beginning of this section. Change is the one distinguishing characteristic of the person who decided to follow Jesus. If you were once a drunk, you won't stay a drunk after conversion. If you were once a thief, you won't stay a thief after conversion. If you once worshipped idols, you won't continue worshipping idols after conversion. Once you've been saved, you must change. No, you won't change alone. I promise you that. You couldn't do it before. You won't be able to do it after. You, in in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, will change you. But you have to be open to it. That's your part. You have to be so in love with Jesus that you want to change. You will recognize your sin. You will. You won't avoid it. And you'll take that sin to Jesus and say, please nail this to the cross. Help me not to be this. Help me not to be a thief anymore. Help me not to worship idols anymore. You have to be willing to do that. Otherwise, the change will not take effect. And if you are not willing to change, then you don't love him. And if you don't love him, you were never saved in the first place. That sounds harsh, but it's the truth. It's as true now as it was at the very beginning of the church. It was on this point that Paul was chastising the Corinthians in his letters to them. This is what prompted that first letter to the Corinthians is they had stopped changing. In fact, they were changing back. They were going back to their old ways. They were doing things that Christians don't do. That sounds legalistic, John. It's not legalistic. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about sanctification. Once you give your life to Christ, that's it. You've given it to him. And he is free to do with it what he sees fit. If you don't want him to change into his likeness, if you don't want him to change you into his likeness, where is your love? And if you have no love for Jesus, if it's not a complete love for Jesus, where is your salvation? Corinth is a ancient Grecian city. Still there, by the way. At one point 
in ancient times. It was a very powerful city-state that was famously aligned with Sparta against Athens in the Peloponnesian League. Very important. Well, over the centuries, as with most civilizations, Corinth declined. Eventually, it was destroyed. And by the time of Paul, it had been rebuilt and had become a Roman colony. Now, under Rome's direction, under Rome's administration, Corinth had actually started to regain much of the prosperity and prestige that it once had when it was an independent Grecian power in the Peloponnesian League. In Paul's day, it was an elegant and wealthy city. And one of its most profitable and reliable sources of revenue came from its steady supply of prostitutes provided to religious adherents and pilgrims to the city's well-known Temple of Venus. They made a lot of money that way. It sustained the city and made them rich. The Cyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature states, quote, The little which is said in the New Testament seems to indicate a wealthy and luxurious community prone to impurity of morals, unquote. In short, in Paul's day, Corinth was a land in need of repentance. Well, during one of his missionary trips, he introduced the people of Corinth to the gospel, and he was actually successful enough to be able to build a thriving church there. Now, at the risk of being overly repetitive and and in the interest of suggesting I'm not just rambling on, I will say again, the one thing that should distinguish all true believers is change. You see, every believer starts out as a convert. Everyone is converted from something to Christianity. No one comes out of the womb a Christian. The Corinthians to whom Paul wrote his letters were converted from idolatrous observance of a devotion to the goddess Venus and all of the associated activities thereof to a belief in the one true God who sent his son to die to save us all. Your conversion may not have been so dramatic. You may have been born into a family where doing the right thing was just what you did. In fact, you may have gone to church every Sunday in your entire memory. But if you didn't do it for the sake of the cross, then you hadn't been converted yet. If you go to church, but you've never given your life to Christ, it really is a waste of time, at least as far as God is concerned. You come to Christ, you come to change. And it doesn't matter the change from. 
It doesn't matter what that is. You don't have to be a murderer, a thief, a prostitute, a drug addict. The first time Peter said, repent, was to a crowd of religious, what the Bible calls devout men. In fact, the men that that Peter told to repent were gathered around the city of Jerusalem for religious reasons. They were following the law. And yet Peter said, repent. They were not necessarily being chastised when Jesus, when, G, when Peter said, repent. That's not necessarily an indictment upon you. It's simply a fact. Change. You must change. Your motivation must change. What you love must change. Your life must change. The Corinthians were told to repent, and they did for a while. But then, turns out Paul had to correct them. The first letter that Paul sent to the Corinthians was written to remind the members of that church that conversion meant change. The things they did before, they were to do no more. The things that were not acceptable in the lives of a Christian were to be forgotten. Paul addressed some of those things directly. Generally speaking, before their conversion, the Corinthians practiced certain rituals and ceremonies and observances as a part of their culture and religion. When they were converted, those previous rituals, ceremonies, and observances that were in conflict with the standards of Christianity, the laws of God, the Word of God, were to come to an end. It's that simple. That is a part of the repentance process. Well, it appears that that didn't happen completely in the city of Corinth. But isn't it true? It's very rare for any convert, either now or then, to be blatantly rebellious. I don't think anyone who backslides ever does so with malicious defiance. Most of the time, it's it seems to the one who's in error that their conduct is not rebellious, it's really nothing more than a maybe a subtle shift to something simply for convenience or for comfort. An unimportant adjustment to something more permissive, perhaps. Something more familiar, perhaps. Something done in the old life that's not so easily let go of. Now, I don't want to give any examples. I want you to examine yourself. I want you to look inward. Do I love Jesus enough to give up whatever? 
is whatever standing in my way. John, you never teach moral laws. Why are we doing it now? We're talking about repentance, conversion, the importance of discerning the things of God. Being able to separate what was old from what is true. It's not easy. I know that. Listen, some old ways of worship can carry with it very fond memories. This is what happened to the Corinthians, and this is what Paul sought to correct. You see, it was common among the Corinthians before their conversion to sort of assemble themselves together. They would very often come together for a a communal meal, not so different from the table of the Lord in practice. And in general, I should say. They would would come together to celebrate religious holidays or war victories or valiant heroes. And you know those earliest Christian missionaries, they would would see this and they'd see this as an advantage because it seemed like these communal meals were very similar to the table of the Lord, and maybe this would make it a a natural and familiar conversion of the practices from the, the pagan way of doing things to the Christian way of doing things. It appears what was already a regular pagan occurrence would eventually or could eventually be appropriated for Christian purposes. Now, that may be a bit of an oversimplification, but the point is, the Corinthians, after conversion, began celebrating the Lord's Supper using a similar pattern of observance, something they were already familiar with. And this is relatively common as you see the spread of Christianity through Europe. Many of the practices, the pagan practices, were co-opted, and believe me, it really got out of hand. But that's not our subject today. So the Corinthians began celebrating the communion, the table of the Lord. It wasn't so difficult to convince them to do this because it's something in general that they were used to. However, as You might imagine overlap began occurring and lines between old and new started to blur. Now, this was not the only problem Paul had to deal with, but it's relative to what we're doing today. Paul, in that first letter, describes for us what happened to this simple, lovely ceremony. He was was telling the Corinthians This is what you're doing now. It's wrong. He said that they were doing things in the old ways. The the rich would arrive with their plenty, just like they did in in the past. They would arrive just to flaunt their wealth, to show off. And then the poor people, well, they'd show up not for the purpose of the celebration of the Lord's table, but hoping for a 
free meal. Moreover, just like about every party that has wine as a central component, some people even got drunk, just like they did in the old days. The Corinthians were losing focus on what this celebration was commissioned for. They had forgotten that it wasn't actually a meal at all. It was a memorial to make a point about life and death. And so Paul had to warn him, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation, that really should be judgment, eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Earlier, I quoted one of the definitions of this English word discern. By way of reminder, discern is defined by Merriam-Webster to mean to come to know or recognize mentally. Those Corinthians were not recognizing, they were not realizing the Lord's body. And that's what this memorial is for. As you are aware, I'm sure, there's usually more than one definition listed for most words in a dictionary. Listen to this one, this additional definition of the word discern. It means to recognize or identify as separate and distinct. The Corinthians were failing to see the difference between sharing a common meal as they once did and celebrating the life and death of Christ. They did not recognize that this was a distinct thing. They were not showing themselves to be repentant and they were risking judgment. In short, they weren't focused. They were not behaving as if they had changed. They were not behaving as if what the Lord did was important. Listen, not to overdramatize, because I don't want you to do that. But this table is a special thing. Though it may have looked like something they had done in the past, those Corinthians didn't recognize that it was vastly different. They did not discern. They were not able to recognize or identify as separate and distinct, as something sacred, as something holy. A part of their Devotion to the goddess Venus was self-service. In fact, their devotion to the goddess Venus wasn't really a religion. It was just an excuse for overindulgence. Their so-called dedication to their gods and goddesses was simply justification for a wanton pursuit of pleasure. What's your point? Don't judge the Corinthians. Why are you going to the table of the Lord?
out of habit? Because your mom wants you to? Because the Johnsons are watching? Because the Pope said I had to? We come to this table, if you do nothing else in your life, come to this table for Him. Come as you are. That's why you don't examine yourself to see if you're worthy. Paul said examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself if you're to see that you believe what you're doing is pleasing Jesus, doing as he asked you to. Listen, when you give yourself to Christ, that's exactly what you're doing. You're giving yourself. You are relinquishing your desire to please self and accepting the duty to please God. Listen, the communion was not given to satisfy our appetites. That's what Paul was saying to the church in Corinth. This isn't a meal to indulge yourselves. Aren't you able to discern that, Corinthians? Well, John, how can this possibly apply to us today? There's hardly enough bread and wine given out in my church to satisfy a mouse. No, we may not come to satisfy our hunger, but we nonetheless have forsaken the true meaning of this table and this egregious transgression is committed not only from the pew but from the pulpit. I mean from the pulpit the communion has become this over-dramatized spectacle. It's become a chance for the church to show off to prove to you the how spiritual they are. The robes and the incense and the organ the music in the background. All this ritualistic gyration, the bread in the cup ever so dramatically raised up and eyes closed, low muttering, ostensibly in some super secret prayer. Oh, and the fancy accoutrements on the altar. You got to have pretty dishes. Believe me, I was an altar boy. I even once knew a preacher who carried a very handsome wooden box that contained a very lovely chalice and all the other shiny instruments for what he thought would be necessary for a very proper communion service. That box went with him everywhere he traveled even a part of his luggage when he went on vacation. Now you may say, well, is there anything wrong with being prepared to share the communion? No. But why the fancy kit? Can't you gather around a few crackers, a plastic cup with a little fruit of the vine, a Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Why the shiny cup? Why the fancy plate? Some of you have heard this before. One of my favorite scenes from any movie is in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. 
I, I can't even fathom it, but that movie came out almost 30 years ago. At least I won't have to announce a spoiler alert. If you haven't seen that movie, you've been living under a rock. The premise of the movie is Indiana Jones is searching for the Holy Grail. You know, the Holy Grail is supposedly the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper, as they call it, the First Communion. Well, this pursuit of the Holy Grail was full of danger and intrigue. After all, it's Indiana Jones. Well, near the end of the movie, when the treasure hunters, both nefarious and altruistic, finally arrive at where they think the grail is, they discover that there's not just one cup, but many. And the challenge is to choose the one that actually belonged to Jesus. The choice you see would somehow separate the good seekers from the bad seekers. Yes, fanciful Hollywood, but stay with me. We are told by the old guardian of the grail that choosing the wrong cup meant you're evil and that you would meet with a grisly death. Well, as the scene unfolds, the overeager, self-motivated bad guy looks through all of the many choices and finally finds one and he says, surely this is the cup of the king of kings. It was shiny and beautiful and bejeweled and golden. The bad guy grabs that cup. Sure, it was the cup of the king of kings. Dips it in some water, drinks from it, and of course suffers a terrifying death. Well, this prompts our hero, Indiana Jones, to look more intently. And he discovers a plain and decidedly less gaudy-looking cup and says, that's the cup of a carpenter. He has chosen wisely, the guardian declares. I can't explain it, but at times, movie makers show an unexpected high level of spiritual acumen. I wish our church leaders did that more often. Listen, I know that the blame for the corruption of the Lord's table isn't just to lie on the shoulders of men. The obfuscation, the obfuscation of the simplicity of this ceremony is without a doubt the work of the devil. Satan knows the powers of this table. He knows this is a celebration of his defeat. He knows that the communion honors his most hated enemy. Perhaps nothing in all of Christianity suffers from more confusion and doubt and trickery and sadly, most of all, indifference, as this beautiful little ceremony does. You'll find as many opinions on how to properly take of these elements as just about any other doctrine in the church. You see, we don't want it to be simple. We don't want it to be about Him. We want it to be grand. 
We want it to be showy. We want it to be about us. We say we've given up ourselves, but have we really? We say we no longer want to do things our way, but do we really? We're no different than those Corinthians. We may not be getting drunk during our communion celebration, at least I hope. But we don't seem to be treating this beautiful little celebration with any more respect than they did. Going to the table of the Lord is done so so we can identify with and relate to the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Treating the table of the Lord like any other meal or any other celebration or any other sacrament, or worse, treating it as if it were of no importance whatsoever, is an insult to a beaten, bruised, dying man. Listen, he wasn't whipped, beaten, and nailed to a cross for his own good. He did it for you. You must discern that. You owe that at least to him. The Corinthians owed that at least to him. The celebration of the communion was given to us in order that we could regularly remember his sacrifice, so we could regularly remember the depth of our sinful nature and what it's done to the Prince of Peace. This table and the elements are celebrated so we can be reminded that sin costs dearly. You see, without fully discerning the Lord's body, you'll never appreciate what you've been saved from. If you continue to miss the truth, if you continue in your insistence in not perceiving what lies behind the bread and the cup, then you are no better than those backsliding Corinthians. Let's not do that anymore. Let's start the change right now. Let's honor our Savior. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. He broke the bread. He gave the pieces of the broken bread to his disciples and told them, This is my body. Now, there are two very important points that you must consider in order to discern this properly. Before Jesus gave that bread to his disciples, point number one, it was broken. Point number two, he broke it. The broken bread, he said, was his body. You must discern that. He wasn't just handing over a piece of broken bread. He was making a point. His body was going to be broken and then given for us. 
Now, he could have given that bread unbroken. But that wouldn't have helped anyone. That's what the Garden of Gethsemane taught us. Remember he told God that he had done what he was sent to do? He fully complied with the law. He lived the perfect life. He could have returned to heaven right there. But if he had, we would have derived no benefit from his life. His perfect, unbroken life would be of no use to us. Listen, in my opinion, the only thing the unbroken body of Jesus would have done is bring glory on him. Not even the Father would have derived a benefit from the unbroken body. If he had offered an unbroken body, the world would have never survived even this long. The bread had to be broken. Second point, intimately related to that first point. Listen to me. The only broken bread that would have been of benefit to us is bread he broke himself. If someone else broke it, it would not have been effective. If someone other than himself would have broken that bread, then he would not have been anything more than a martyr. Now, martyrdom may have some value to causes, but martyrdom doesn't save people. Yes, martyrs inspire, martyrs enrage, martyrs embolden, but never save. Jesus once said, John 10, 17 and 18, I laid down my life that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Again, we go to the Garden of Gethsemane. After his prayers were complete, Judas leads a rabble to arrest him. Now, this wasn't the first time a mob threatened to arrest Jesus, to grab Jesus. It happened more than a few times before, but each of those previous times, Jesus was able to slip away, undetected. This time, he didn't even try. The right time had come. In fact, when G Judas did come, he had a couple opportunities to escape, but he passed them up. For instance, when Peter cut off the ear of one of the men, that would have been a perfect distraction for Jesus to escape. It was nighttime. The mob was probably all scrambling for their weapons. The dust was getting kicked up. He could have just run. He didn't. He chose to stay. He even rebuked Peter a little bit. Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? No one's forcing it down his throat, the cup the Father gave him. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus referred to his own standing army that was just waiting to go to battle for him. 
He never made the call. He never raised the alarm because he was not going to be captured. He was turning himself in. His intention was to go voluntarily. He was going to be the instrument of breaking his own body. They wasted their time bringing those handcuffs. He took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and then gave it to his disciples. You must discern that. You must realize that. Take the bread in your hand. Look not it at it, but beyond it, to what it represents. Realize that in this simple act of discerning, his suffering on your behalf comes alive in our hearts and minds. Take it with me, and let's all thank him for what he willingly did for the whole world. Let's do it now. Leviticus 17.11 says, The life of the soul resides in the blood. The book of Leviticus was where the Israelites could find all the proper steps for making offerings to God. And the one thing that comes out time and again is that the blood of the sacrifice is crucial to the legitimacy and efficacy of the offering. Listen, you don't have to cut an animal open to kill it. If all that was needed was death, you could just take a big club and bash it on the head. If death was all that was needed, you could poison the poor thing. But that isn't how God commanded it. Listen to me. Blood must be present. But why? Because if the blood is present, death was certifiable because the life of the soul is in the blood. If the blood is flowing out, so is the life. Without the blood, death is not certifiable under those circumstances. If blood was flowing out, there could be no question about whether or not the animal was alive before coming to the sacrifice. And only a live sacrifice is effective. You can't bring an already dead animal and try to offer it up. A life is as necessary as a death. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take some of the blood of the sacrifice and present it to God in the Holy of Holies. Again, the question is why? Because God required proof of death. Uh, yeah, God, uh, yeah, the sacrifice is dead back there. Take my word for it. No. Show me the blood. When I see the blood, I will spare you. That's God's pattern. It was his pattern in Egypt. It was his pattern in the wilderness. When he was present in the tabernacle, it's his 
It was his pattern in the permanent temple, and it's his pattern when Jesus hung on that cross. You must discern this. Pick up that cup. But when you do, discern that it isn't just something to casually drink. Pick up the cup and again see past its physical properties and look to the fact that it represents the proof that Jesus died on that cross. Proof that you believe that. That it was his blood that washed away my sin. The blood as it poured out of his body was washing the earth. It was hitting the earth, cleansing the earth of sin. His blood is proof that his perfect life was poured out so that it could serve as a substitute for our decidedly imperfect lives, yours and mine. Lift that cup, drink from it, and in so doing, acknowledge that you want his blood applied to you that you want the cleansing of the blood, the blood that flowed from the sacrifice to enter into you and cleanse you from all your sin. Do it now and thank him for it. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.